Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, verses from 18 to 31. Exodus chapter 4, verses from 18 onwards. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Good morning again, everybody. Uh, If you're new, my name is RJ. I'm one of the pastors here uh, in Tungabi Baptist Church. Um, Now we're going through the book of Exodus. Uh, If you're new to Christianity, uh, Exodus is where you'll find the famous story where the Israelites uh, exit. That's why it's called Exodus, exits Egypt, and then they cross the Red Sea, and then Moses receives the Ten Commandments. It's a very famous story. Now we're up to the part. We're not, we're, not, we're not up to that part yet, but today, as we just read, we're looking at one of the weirdest and most difficult passages to make sense of in the book of Exodus. Uh, some sort of foreskin touching Moses and so on. This is very weird. Uh, but it is in the Bible, so let's wrestle with it together. Uh, but before we do, uh, let's begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your written word. We pray that your spirit will speak to us now and that we will bring conviction and transformation in our lives. Amen. You know, one of the many reasons I knew that I can work well here uh, with Pastor James is that James and I can really complement each other's leadership style. I know that James is a visionary. He sees the big picture, the overall goal of what could be and he sees the possibilities of what Tungabi Baptist Church can do in many years. He's very much an optimist. He believes anything is doable and achievable, and these are really, really great qualities that we need for a lead pastor. But I'm a little bit different. I'm I'm not a pessimist, but I'm a realist. It's good to have all this grand vision and goal, but I want to know exactly how we're planning to get there. You can't convince me to follow you just because you had a dream. I need the blueprint of the strategy. 
I need to, I tend to question the, question the steps. I critique the method. I will count the resources needed because I want a foolproof plan. So Pastor James tends to motivate by sharing the grand vision. I tend to motivate with the perfect plan to get there. Now, I think Moses is a realist like me. In chapter 3, God gives Moses the goal, the vision. God says that I will free tens and thousands of people in slavery, and then I will relocate them in hundreds of kilometers away from Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then when they get there, they will have to defeat the people living there. That's the grand vision. It's a big goal. It's It's an impossible goal. Especially if you don't have military power, if you're slaves, you don't have military power to defeat the advanced technology of the Egyptians. And if you don't have a lot of resources to feed a lot of people as you travel through the desert, and then you will have to defeat the inhabitants of the new place. It's really impossible. And God said to Moses, I want you to lead this mission. So then Moses asked a series of critical questions regarding God's vision and plan. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? He says, I'm not qualified for this. I'm the worst project manager for this, Lord. Another objection, he goes, what if, what if they don't believe me? And God said, don't worry. I will show my, the evidence that I am with you by displaying my power. But then again, question, uh, Moses questions again. But I've, I've never been good in, in speech. I've never been eloquent. I'm slow in speech. I'm, I'm not good at persuading people. Don't worry, God said. I will send Aaron to go with you. Again, it's easy to judge Moses and think that he just lacks faith. But I can really sympathize with Moses because I would have asked the same thing. See, he's just counting the cost. He's assessing the situation. He's questioning the plan. It is, after all, mission impossible. Now, I'm sure many of you have been asked by God to do something that seems impossible. But you probably did a risk and reward analysis and you said, no. Maybe there was a time when you felt like doing something really crazy for God. But as soon as you evaluated the cost, you backed down. Remember we said a few weeks ago that our call to salvation is also a call to service. That if you are a Christian, it's not an additional option to serve God and his people. The great commission to go and make disciples for all nations is not just for the select few, it's for all Christians. So in a way, we are all called to do the impossible, to be part of God's mission impossible. But why are there very few people actually going? Why are there very few Christians making disciples? It's because I believe, like Moses, we're wondering if this plan is really going to work. And if it's really worth it. And so today, we're going to look at three things that we can learn how God works out his salvific plan. And I believe it just might be the the understanding that we need to help us to go or to keep going in our ministry. See, if you look at this really short story just before Moses goes back to Egypt, and if you, if you think of it, it's really not that crucial to the narrative. Really, the whole story will make sense if we take it out. In fact, it will make more sense to take it out because it's just so complicated. But it's here, and it's teaching us something before the big shebang of the plagues and so on. 
So three things we can learn how God's plan of salvation takes place, which is revealed for our encouragement today. The three things are the certainty of God's plan, the partnership of God's people, and the cost of God's promise. The certainty of God's plan, the partnership of God's people, and the cost of God's promise. So firstly, the certainty of God's plan. Once again, we are being shown and reminded who is in control of this situation. Uh, In Exodus, there is a constant, again and again, a reminder that God is always in control. Because we'll see the Israelites really lack faith and they're constantly doubting God's plan and goodness. They keep questioning the result. They keep complaining about the method. They keep whinging about their situation. But as we've seen so far, that from the birth of Moses to Moses leaving Egypt as a fugitive and a refugee, and then his 40 years as a shepherd was basically part of God's plan. It was all planned out by God. And now God is laying out once again his plan to Moses of what is about to take place, that he's commanding it. Verse 21, God tells Moses what to do and when. Or also in verse 19, he goes to go now because people that are looking for you have died. Verse 21 also, God tells Moses how Pharaoh will react. Verse 22, God tells Moses exactly what to say. And even in verse 27, we see Aaron now getting involved as part of God's plan. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, um, chess tournaments was very much a big international sport. Uh, Now, there's still competitions running today, but it's not much of a big deal now. I think one of the big reasons that it started to lose traction was that in the 90s, uh, 26 years ago, the smartest chess champion can can no longer defeat a computer. That, you know, if you've played a, a, if you play chess against a computer, the computer can basically anticipate every move that you're making. It can calculate millions, if not billions, of possibilities, and so it is always, always ahead of you. See, the computer forces you to take a certain move in a way that the computer, we can say, is sovereign, it's in control all the time of the game's outcome. And even if you, know, if you undo your move, if you go back, the computer can still put that into consideration. And that's what sovereignty is, that always being in control, no surprises. And we've talked about this during Moses' birth, that all that, the river flowing and all the the, the genocide happening was part of God's plan. And even Moses escaping to Midian. But more so, God not only anticipates the different circumstances and choices that people make, but even our very motive is not left to chance. Because here we're told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. That throughout the plague, we'll see Pharaoh hardening his own heart, that he's, he's, he's disobedient. But in other times, it is God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so throughout Exodus, we are told that this is done so that God can display his power when Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, there's this uh, story when Jesus healed a blind man. Now the disciples asked why the man was born blind. They asked, is it, is it karma? That, is it that because he sinned or maybe his parents sinned so he's being punished? Jesus answered that he is blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Meaning that he was blind 
so that Jesus can heal him there and then. That his blindness was not an accident, but so that, so that others can see the light through his healing. That his suffering had a bigger purpose. That God's sovereignty can use suffering to bring faith. Proverbs 21, verse 30. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. It's saying nothing and nobody can ever stop God's plan from happening. Which means God's biggest plan and his biggest purpose is to save you and me from sin and death. And that can never be stopped. As Paul said in Romans 8, that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. That his, that his plan to pour out his love for us in Christ Jesus can never be taken away from us. When Benjamin Franklin signed the American, American Constitution, he said nothing is certain besides death and taxes. But the Bible says the only thing that is certain is God's plan coming to fruition. And so what a wonderful assurance that God's plan to save you and me can never be stopped by anything or anyone. It's a great assurance for me, knowing that I can make a mess of my life, but I can never make a mess of God's plan. Now I know some of you are probably wondering, well, what happened to free will? You're wondering, what if God, if God is so in control of everything, including our very own will, then how can we, can we blame him for sin? Now, we don't have the full time to explore this, but let me give you this illustration. Now, every time I go to Coles or Woolies, I have this incredible dilemma that I walk into the frozen section of the store and I have to make this very difficult decision of which ice cream to buy the family. It's a big responsibility, right? Now, I am completely free. I have hundreds of choices. But there are so many things affecting my decision. And a lot of all these factors are, are really out of my control. For example, I don't choose my taste buds. I have an acquired taste. So does my kids. That, you know, we, the, the kids grew up in the same house, but they all like different things. Now, secondly, I look for the ones that are on sale. I feel less guilty if it's half price. Again, I am free to choose, but I am always, you know, I'm always choosing the cheaper option. See, I'm completely free to make a choice, but my choice is governed by so many other factors in life. And see, similarly, we are free and we are responsible for our own actions, but God does, doesn't leave that to chance. He works all things according to his plan. Now, how do we make sense of that? Well, we can't. It's hard to explain. It's hard to explore. Just that, it's just how it is. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, explain it this way. It's a Presbyterian thing. But it says, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet... So as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. It's saying in God's wisdom and holiness that he has planned out everything 
that nothing is left to chance, but yet God is not the source of sin, nor does he force violence on people because humans are always free and therefore responsible. The point is God is always in control and humans are also responsible for their choices. Now, how do we harmonize the two? Well, we can't. We're not meant to figure it out, but it's a source of comfort that God's power surrounds us and his plan never fails. And I, I think, secondly, it's, it's humbling to know that, you know, I'm responsible for my own actions and choices. And so we need to hold those two things together. It's a great assurance for my ministry that when I preach, I know I have to work hard to make it clear, to make it persuasive, but you, and because I know that you'll have to make a choice in the end to obey God. But it's also an assurance for me that people's salvation doesn't depend on how well I preach, but it's entirely up to God. That I can sleep tonight knowing that God can use this and that, that I can never get a big head because it doesn't matter how good I preach, it's not up to my skills. It is only when God's Spirit is at work softening your heart. See? Which then leads us to our second question. If God is so sovereign, then why does he need to involve us? Why did he need Moses? I mean, did you notice last week that God spoke to Moses through the burning bush? But why doesn't God speak directly to Pharaoh? Wouldn't that be better to free up the Israelites? Here's the second point. The partnership of God's people. Now, it must have been very frustrating for God to ask Moses to be part of this plan. Moses who is questioning every single thing and, and doubting everything. You know when you ask your child to do something and you know it will be a lot easier if you just do it yourself, right? In fact, you'll know that it, will, that it will be more work if you get them involved. But why do we involve them? Well, a, couple, a few reasons. Firstly, it's part of our growth and maturity. If you don't allow your children to have a go and make mistakes, if you don't train them and give them responsibilities, obviously they won't grow up. In the same way, Christian maturity is not simply reading your Bible, saying your prayers. You know, a lot of Christians don't grow in maturity because they don't really put their faith into action. I mean, we love Bible studies, but very few love Bible obedience. See, when you're reading your Bible, there are two things that we need to ask. Firstly, what is God saying? Right? That's what we do in Bible study. What is God saying? But we often forget to ask the question, what am I going to do about this? Is that right? You know, ask God, what, what are you saying to me, Lord? Study it. But we need to ask, so what am I going to do about it? The first one is a lot easier, listening to God. The second one really requires trusting God. And see, even with Moses, that God reveals himself to Moses. God, God speaks to Moses. He tells Moses his, his will and plan. But imagine if Moses says, you know, Lord, no thanks. I'm 80 years old. I just want to retire. Now, I'm sure God could have gotten someone else. But because Moses acted and therefore he saw what God can do through, through him, he matured in faith. So often... I believe Christians miss out on spiritual maturity and seeing what God can do through them because we are unwilling to follow through what we hear God is telling us to do. What are you going to do about it?
Now, secondly, the reason God involves us in his salvation plan, because it really brings joy, that it brings joy seeing lives transformed by God, that our partnership with God to seek and save the lost is one of the greatest joy and purpose in our lives. Now, we see this with the Apostle Paul all the time, who, who always faced persecution and, and, and suffering, and yet he finds great joy through it all. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says that he always thanked God continually because when you received the word of God, when the church received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but is actually the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So Paul is expressing gratitude to God because the church believed the word of God that he preached and he can see the fruits of that labor. So if he doesn't preach, then he won't see these lives being transformed by the gospel. That his involvement allows him to be a witness of God's work, which leads to gratitude. Again, God can get someone else aside from Paul, but it is evident that Paul again and again is able to rejoice as he sees the harvest of the gospel being proclaimed because of the obedience and boldness that he has. So the more we participate in God's work, the more we grow in our faith and the more we get to rejoice and be part of God's wonderful plan of seeing lives transformed for the glory of God. See, imagine in heaven, Imagine all the people that you're going to meet in heaven one day. And imagine all the conversation that you're going to have because you play the part in people's salvation. That maybe you took the courage to invite someone to church and they became a Christian because of that. Maybe you sacrificed a lot of your time to disciple or mentor someone. Maybe you gave up buying some good things so that you can support a missionary who can reach the unreached. So whether directly or indirectly, I believe we will see one day how we got involved in each other's lives. And that's why Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth, but store it up in heaven. Well, how do you store it up in heaven? Well, the currency here, our talents, our money, our time, we can invest it now so that we will have the better currency in heaven, which is lives transformed by the work of the gospel. Participating in God's work is transformative and fulfilling and glorifying to God. And here's what we need to keep in mind, that God doesn't just call us without equipping us. In chapter 4, verse 12, in Exodus, God gives Moses the word to say, but in verse 17, God gives, the, God gives Moses the power to do the work. And if you go back to chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord asked Moses, what's in your hand? And Moses said, well, it's a stick that I have for shepherding. But in verse 20, that stick is now called the staff of God. It used to be a shepherd's rod. It is now the staff of God. What Moses used to do for his vocation as a shepherd is now being used by God to defeat Moses and to lead the Israelites out. And I think in the same way, God can be asking us today, what is in your hand? God might say, go here and do this. Your, your, your response might be like Moses, I can't do it. God's answer to you is, 
what's in your hand. Let me use that for my glory. God is able to use our talents, your vocation, your life experience, your, even your pain and suffering to do his work. But only, only if we are willing, like Moses, to throw it in the ground and allow God to make something out of it. Let me go back to our main point. That ministry work is God's work. It is all God's work. But, but the way God works in the world is by using his very chosen people. That we are his vessels to do his will. Therefore, therefore we cannot say that God, we can't say that God is at work in the suburb of Tungabi if we as a church in Tungabi are not doing anything. We can't say that God is at work here now in our church if the individuals are not doing anything because we are the vessels of God's will. God's work is realized through God's people. God involves us, which means as long as we hear from God and, 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 and rely on God's power, then God continues with his plan. And there's a third thing that we need to know how, God, how God's plan of salvation works out. And that is the cost of his promise. Our last point. The cost of God's promise. Now, we are now... It's a very complicated... We're going to look at this very complicated passage. Not only because it's, you know... It's hard... It's complicated because it's actually very hard to translate. See, in verse 24... Verse 24 doesn't really mention Moses. Really, it says the Lord met with him and was about to kill him. But then it just assumes it's Moses because he's the main person of the story and also he's the subject of the previous verse. But the problem with that translation is that in verse 25, it's the same, it's the same problem. that It says that Zipporah cuts off her son's foreskin and then touched him with it, which then you can assume that maybe touched his son with it or is it Moses? So there's just a confusion. Like there's a number of questions that we need to answer. We don't know who God is trying to kill. We don't know exactly why God is trying to kill this person or how God is killing this person. We don't know how Zipporah knew what to do. And then we don't know what Zipporah means by bridegroom of blood. So there's a lot of things that we're just not sure about. And a lot of Bible commentaries actually either skip this part or they just don't say too much about it. But it has to be here for a reason, right? And God in his divine sovereignty wants us to read and learn something uh, for us today. So what can we learn? Let's start with something that is certain. Firstly, we know this has something to do with circumcision because obviously it mentions it. In the story, God is angry and circumcision is what appeased God's anger. So what is circumcision? In Genesis 17, we're told that God made circumcision the sign that someone is under God's contract. That's the way you sign the contract or you, the way you accept his promise. God said to Abraham, I will bless you, but for you to accept the terms of blessing, sign the contract, which is circumcision. It means you have faith, you're agreeing to it. So it is possible that Moses' son, who is not circumcised, and therefore, he's outside of God's blessing. And so God was trying to kill him. Or possibly Moses is not circumcised. 
So Zipporah maybe circumcised her son because Moses was too sick and just applied the blood on Moses by touching him. Either way, we're not sure, but either way it's showing us that no one is exempt from the justice and wrath of God. And circumcision in the Old Testament is the only way to receive, and to receive God's grace and mercy. Therefore, if you want to receive life from God and not death, then you need to have the mark of his promise, which is at that time, faith through circumcision. So it's either you, have, you are under God's promise or not. There's no middle line. Moses or his son is not saved because they're doing something for God. He's not saved because of their family history. He's saved from God's justice and wrath because he puts himself under the promise of God. So here's the application to this weird passage. The only way we know to receive God's eternal life, the only way to receive God's ultimate blessing is to be under his covenant of grace. Now in the Old Testament, we know it is faith through circumcision that you believe God and so you mark yourself as, God's, as one of God's people. In the New Testament, the promise now comes through Jesus Christ, but to enter is the same thing. You need to have faith marked by baptism to signify your new life, your death to life and your new life. And I think in the same way, you and I, it doesn't really matter how, how much, how long we've been a Christian or how much you've read the Bible or how much you've given to church, that you are saved purely by the grace of God through your faith in Christ Jesus, which is, according to Jesus, is marked by the sacrament of baptism. The cost for God's people is faith and obedience by baptism. But what is the cost for God? Because remember... In a contract, there's two sides. In verses 22 to 23, for the very first time in the Bible, God calls the Israelites his firstborn son. God said to Pharaoh, since you won't let my firstborn son go, I will take your firstborn son. For God to save the Israelites, his firstborn son, the Israelites, he will have to pour out his wrath on Pharaoh's firstborn son, that it will take one precious life to save many. Now can you see how it foreshadows something for centuries later? For it says that God, to free his people from sin and death, it will cause him his own very beloved son. That in John 3.16, it tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only beloved son that whoever believes in him by faith shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God to bring eternal life to us, he had to give up his beloved son who died for our sake, that the cost of salvation for God is he needed to give up his only son. The son needed to take his father's wrath so that through faith we can be freed like the Israelites and we can be forgiven. What helps us to keep going in ministry or what motivates us to make disciples? The certainty of God's plan that it will all pan out the way it should be because he's always in control. The partnership of God's people that God involves us for our own maturity and for our own joy. And most importantly, the cost of God's promise that God has given everything to make this plan work. What else would we need? Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
for this incredible sacrifice. We thank you for this incredible plan. Often, Lord, we doubt it. Often we question it. Often we, we, we try to see if there's any other way. But Lord, in great faith, faithfulness and obedience, give us your spirit that we can see it through. That even though we are walking in the dark sometimes, not knowing of where to go, that your, your spirit will always lead us. And we pray for us as a church that you will motivate us, you will encourage us to work together in bringing salvation to all people to the ends of the world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.